Castle, episode 278, for September 19th, hopefully, 2013, Nor the Moonlight, by Andrew Penn Romine, rated R for some disturbing imagery. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle, I'm Dave Thompson. And if I sound a little like I've had some kind of Frankensteinian surgery done to my vocal cords, well, let's just go with that. Because it sounds a lot more exciting than the reality. Today, we've got a story that delights me because it deals with the lost generation. No, the lost generation does not refer to those of us who spent six long years watching a TV show about a plane crash off a mysterious island. Rather, it refers to the generation that comes of age during World War I, known then as the Great War. A hell of a lot of good modern literature came out of it, including writers like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. What a bizarre time that was. In the United States, literally the same time when The Great Gatsby was written and set, prohibition is in effect. Selling alcohol had become illegal. Former soldiers were disillusioned after the war, some, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald, lived abroad, became expatriates. Paris in the 1920s inspired a lot of art, visual, musical, and literary. But not even Hemingway's lost generation was quite as lost as the characters in this week's story. Oh, also, there might be monsters. There will be some really surreal, horrific art. And I'm not talking about a farewell to arms as filmed by Boz Lerman. Podcastle is very proud to present Nor the Moonlight by Andrew Penn Romine, originally published in the anthology Broken Time Blues, Fantastic Tales of the Roaring Twenties from Edge Absolute Express, edited by James Gates and Erica Holt. Andrew Penn Romine lives in Los Angeles, where he works in the visual effects and animation industry. His fiction appears online at Lightspeed Magazine, Paizo, and Cross Genre, as well as the anthologies Fungi, What Fates Impose, by Fairy Light, and the forthcoming Coins of Chaos. You can find this full list of publications on his website at andrewpenromine.com. He's also contributed nonfiction articles to Lightspeed and blogs at inkpunks.com and at functionalnerds.com as the booze nerd. You can follow his day-to-day adventures on Twitter at InkGorilla. The story is read to you by Hugo Award-winning colorist Cheyenne Wright, who last read for us Iron Eyes and the Watered-Down World by Saladin Ahmed. You can find him online at ArcaneTimes.com. Wow. Of all the gin joints and all the podcasts and all the worlds, you had to come in and enjoy the story in this one, huh? Now drink up, old sport. Drink up. Nor by Moonlight by Andrew Penn Romine I sat on a stool in the Café de Lune that last night in Paris, gulping Mark and sewing my right arm back together below the elbow, with a needle and some of the last of the fil vitaliete. The surgical thread glimmered like quicksilver in the dim electrics of the café and the bloody flaps of muscle and flesh of my severed arm knitted back together as the healing magic did its work. Sensation returned to the tips of my fingers, like the buzzing of bees, and I flexed them into a fist. The robber had burst into my cafe, waving his knife, 
surprising me as I locked up for the night. But he'd made the error of assuming I was just another veteran of the Great War, wrapped in a fisherman's net of scars. He didn't know I'd already died once before, that I had been raised from the charnel fields of the Compagnane, gifted with the heart of a bull and the sinewy limbs of dead men. His body cooled in the cellar as rain sheeted the cobblestones. I traced the ancient gouges on the wooden counter, rubbing feeling back into my right hand. Chill wind rattled under the door and I regretted the killing. Most of the desperate men loitering along the Rue d'Aguerre in the dark hours were afraid of me. This man must have been a recent refugee from the war-poisoned countryside. A shadow appeared at the door, and for a moment I feared police. Tatters of the Central Commune's authority still held sway within the city, although the horrors of the Great War had shattered the power of France's People's Republic. So much for Lenin's promises of aid. France languished and Paris with it. I lurched to the door, dragging my left leg, the only original limb from my first life. Magic sutures or no, the tendons had never quite healed from the shrapnel that had severed them. The right leg I hated. It had belonged to a German with three shades paler with fine blonde hair. I couldn't even pretend it was my own, but at least it didn't drag. Cafe is closed, I growled, sufficiently gruff to scare off all but the most insistent vagrant. The silhouette of a top hat bobbed in the pale glow of the street lamp. Not a bum or a gendarme, then. I threw back the heavy bolt and glared into the rain. Lionel Kane swayed in the doorway, still dapper despite his soggy hat and clinging rain-soaked tuxedo. He clutched his belly, and a dark stain grew from beneath his well-manicured fingers. The familiar cruelness of superiority had drained from his blue eyes. A grimace of agony replaced his usual uncomfortable sneer. Samuel, old boy, he moaned. May I come in? I'd heard moans like that in the no-man's land of the Champagnane. Gut wounds ate your life away with slow, deliberate bites. Get to a hospital. Even death wouldn't buy him forgiveness for me. I pushed the door closed. Wait! He jammed a blood-stained spat against the door. Pink water etched gruesome hieroglyphs on the floor's hexagonal tiles. It's Elaine, he said between clenched teeth. The cramp in my arm seared a line to my chest, rekindling the old heartache. Where is he? A mansion, moored to the Tour Lamel. Picasso's aerostat. My shock ebbed to a dull fury. I dragged Kane inside and threw him into a chair. Don't say his name so loudly. He has spies everywhere. One of the most powerful sorcerers in Europe, Picasso had only increased in might since he married the Russian witch and allied himself openly with Lenin. His fame had grown as an artist, too. Few could match his ability to create art from paint, or from clay, or from flesh. I had been his first masterpiece. He raided the final battlefield of Champagnane for the parts of the dead men to stitch together with his sorcery and fill vitaliate. There were others, new lives from the dead flesh of French, German, Russians, and Americans like me. At least... That's what he told me, though I never saw them. Picasso inevitably tired of his toys, 
After only a short time, he released me without warning to the uncertain safety of post-war Paris. And a year ago, Picasso had taken Alain Delaunay, my Alain, with him. Just as Kane had first taken Alain from me. Tell me everything, I demanded. Alain sent me a letter by New Picasso's leaving Paris again. There was to be a farewell party tonight. I couldn't get in. Something was guarding the entrance. Kane's eyes flickered to his belly wound. Coils of intestine peeked from beneath his grip. Why should I go to him now? Elaine had made his choice years ago. Kane frowned as if he were addressing a child. Please, Samuel. We've both lost Elaine. But only you can save him. He doesn't want saving. Picasso has given him wings, old boy. Blasphemous words. My bull's heart pounded so hard I thought it might burst apart at the seams. Other fools had asked Picasso for wings, and all of them were dead now. I slammed a bottle of absinthe on the table in front of Kane. He hated the stuff, but I didn't care. I bit off the remaining fill vitaliete that still dangled from my arm. Six inches of thread remained attached to the bloody needle. What of me? Kane asked. His damp skin had taken on an alabaster hue. You could go to a hospital. The gendarmes might not ask too many questions. Or you can stay here and finish the bottle and sew yourself up. I dropped Picasso's healing thread into Kane's hand and left him shaking in the dark. I wouldn't let Elaine fly away from me again. Elaine and I first met at the Café de Lune in 1921. In those early days after the armistice, Martin Charlebois still ran the café, and he always had tables free for veterans. He had lost an eye himself, fighting the Prussians for the commune back in the 70s. He hid his scar beneath an eye patch of brown leather and wrinkles like folded paper. I had known a little of Paris before the war, and barely recognized the new avenues the German siege guns had fashioned. The familiar slums of Montparnasse welcomed me and the other veterans back through. At the Café de Lune we drank absinthe and mock and whiskey, drowning our yearnings for missing arms, legs, eyes, and pieces of our souls. Charlebois hired me. I waited tables and chased out the rowdies. In the spring of 21, he threw himself a grand party for his 80th birthday. Veterans drank free if they wore their medals. Every threadbare uniform displayed the emerald stripes of the Medaille Metier or the cross swords of the Croix de Guerre. I passed back and forth through the jostling company armed only with bottles of champagne. On the sidewalk terrace, a group of deflated revelers hurtled around a small table. Sons of party officials in starched shirts and wrinkled blue jackets, their fortunes as ruined by war as our bodies. Such youngsters clustered like dour hummingbirds at a flower whenever the liquor flowed freely, a vestige of carefree privilege. Alaine Delaunay was one such man, but sat apart from the conversation. His bored, pond-blue eyes drifted, resting on me with an impact like machine-gun fire. 
His straw, pale hair, and ashen skin made him seem like a ghost. As I filled his champagne glass, he fixed his haunted gaze upon me. Do I know you, Monsul? My mind fizzled like the bubbles in the champagne. I shook my head as much to clear it as to answer. His friends sneered at my patchwork of scars, willing me to vanish now that I had refilled their glasses. Elaine stood, waving off their jibes. He walked with me back to the cafe's narrow entrance. I'm Elaine Delaunay. You're American, we? Oui? Yes. Sam Loeb, I said. I offered him a cigarette and took one for myself. Fratful scars, he commented, leaning in for me to light him up. He stroked the back of my hand, tracing the puckered flesh along my knuckles. I heard artillery shells whistling in my head. The war, I explained. Of course. He traced the ridge of scar tissue on my right arm to where it blurred with the ruin of my bicep. I shuddered at his touch. I do not mean to hurt you, he said, mistaking my flinching for pain. The war scarred us all. Did you serve? You don't look wounded, I replied, trying to ignore my body's response to his touch. Some wounds don't show so easily, he looked away, and the reflection of the half-moon from the cafe's electric sign vanished from his dark eyes. They were bottomless, though some ripple of pained memory stirred in their depths. Why do you stay in Paris, Sam? he asked. Simple. Look at me. Paris is on her deathbed. Blasted and poisoned by the Germans, even as we defeated them. Even the countryside stinks of dying. We must fly away before we die with her. I'll probably run the cafe one day. That's future enough for me. Elaine smiled and the hollowness vanished from his eyes. He took my hand and shook it. Of course. Marvelous to meet you, Sam. Thank you for the cigarette. Well, let's not say good night just yet, I suggested. He didn't let go. My heart pounding, I led him through the alleys towards the thrumming machinery of the power plant. The ancient catacombs still slumbered beneath the shadow of the exhaust towers, and I knew the secret entrances. In my other hand, I still held the champagne. These visions of the past shattered as I hurried towards the Tour Lamel, stomping through the fragile mirrors of a dozen puddles. It had stopped raining, but the clouds pressed close like a bruise. The damp air stank of garbage and chlorine a legacy of the poison shells that had salted the surrounding countryside. Drunk scurried away from my stiff-legged stride. At the base of the Tour Lamel, I hesitated. The four-legged tower thrust into the soft gray belly of the fog, impregnating it with the violet glow of the lights that ran along the steel girders. Five aerostats gathered around the tower like pale jellyfish, gripping the structure with clusters of mooring lines like long tentacles. The luxury gondolas glinted, scarabs of aluminum and burnished wood, Picasso's aerostat, moored to the highest deck of the tower, bobbed in a froth of mist. Three grand lifts carried residents and visitors to the gangway decks. 
and a yawning porter in a powder-blue uniform and flat-billed cap kept watch in a glass-walled lobby at the tower's base. He did not see me, and I drew back into the shadows and found an unlocked service ladder on the tower's northernmost leg. I flexed my still-healing arm. The fresh sutures pinched and tugged on my skin, but the muscles had already knitted back together, and the bone remained intact. Visions of Elaine drew me up into the superstructure, though I knew the reunion that awaited me would not be a happy one. When I had gained the highest deck, a view of the vast mausoleums and thickets of limestone of the Cimetière du Montparnasse stretched out before me, twice the size it was before the Great War. It was as if death had flooded the city and left tombs instead of barnacles when it had receded. I grew dizzy and hugged with the ladder, seized by the certainty of falling into that city of the dead. Elaine became a frequent visitor to the Café du Lune. He laughed easily and won Charlebois's heart as well as mine. After a couple of years, I think the old man began to nurture a fantasy that the pair of us would keep the place running when he was gone. A fantasy that I confess I encouraged. The Café had been my home. I hoped it would also be Elaine's. In the quiet hours, Elaine's eyes would become restless with other thoughts. And one night, I awoke to an empty bed. A frantic search led me to the roof where Elaine stood gazing into the murky sky. A chill, noxious air blew in from the northeast, carrying dust of what had once been Champagne Forest. It smelled faintly of chlorine, and I wished I had brought my gas mask with me. Elaine, let's go in. It's not safe to breathe tonight. Elaine pressed close, but ignored my plea. He traced the scars along my chest to the quilted expanse of my abdomen and the fretwork of joints that tied my skin muscles together. Those aren't just scars, are they, Sam? Picasso made you. He breathed the sorcerer's name like a prayer. I had put off Elaine's questions about my wounds before, but Picasso's sorcerous reputation had finally slipped the bounds of secrecy. Whispers spread, and the young elite had flocked to him, begging the great artist to sculpt with their flesh. Yes, I replied, closing my eyes so as not to look into Elaine's. I wonder if he could put me back together too, he whispered. Leaves and dust whirled down the avenue in phantom, serpentine coils. I shook my head. He's a maestro in paints and charcoals, in flesh, not the spirit. I've heard he is gathering a new circle about him. He is a genius. Picasso uses people for his art, not to heal their pain. Can't one find peace in art? Elaine protested. I smoked a cigarette in the darkness and remembered the days after I died, being ripped from the cold sleep of death by Picasso's barbed brushwork had been anything but peaceful. The stink of decay overwhelms me, Elaine said. I must leave Paris soon. I wearied of his melancholy, but I didn't want to argue again. I shuddered, 
hearing the screams of my second birth echoing in my memory. I'm sure Charlebois won't mind if we take some time in the country. Maybe the trains will even be running this weekend. There are still places where we don't have to worry about landmines or unexploded gas shells. It's not enough. Can't it be? I snapped. Isn't it enough simply to be together under the light of the moon? Nothing is simple anymore. The poison wind blew stronger and the fight died in both of us as our nostrils burned. We returned to bed and agreed to take the train to burst for their weekend. But in August, Picasso returned to Paris in a dirigible purchased from the bankrupt Weimar Republic. The whole city looked up into the muggy, leaden skies, the drone of its elephantine engines. It moored on a tower near Notre Dame, and people began to gossip that the sorcerer had returned from America, with new magic that might polish the cloudy jewel of Paris and renew the blighted countryside. Elaine served the patrons on the terrace with his neck craned to the sky. Perhaps they expected Picasso to swoop down into the tangle of Montparnasse and fly him away. So preoccupied was he with thoughts of the sky, Elaine poured a café creme onto the lap of an Englishman with high, smooth cheekbones and a devilish, if cruel, beauty. That day I lost Elaine's mind to fanciful dreams of Picasso, and when Lionel Kane's face smile brightened the Rue d'Agier, I lost his heart as well. I brushed the memories aside and regained my balance upon the tower. A rustle of canvas echoed from the marble vestibule of the Aerostat's gangway, and a shadow of crimson and gold slithered out from the wood and aluminum door. Picasso did not trust his security to the sleepy night porter below. A patrick being of torn painted canvases in the shape of a harlequin emerged from the shadows, the hollow circles of its black eyes fixed upon me, and the blue cubes of his mouth rattled a warning. It brandished tattered fingers of stiffened canvas-like claws. I grabbed its wrist and yanked the thing toward me, catching it by surprise. It weighed nothing, but tugged back with a grip equal to my own. The sheaves of its limbs coiled around my arms like a python. My wounded arm grew numb, and the fresh scar tingled. Black, sluggish blood, like engine oil, leaked from my torn stitches. I didn't want to lose the limb twice. With my free hand, I tore at the frilly joint where the thing's head met its torso. A dust cloud of ancient canvas and old paint puffed from the stump of the harlequin's neck. The rough twine snapped, and the head came free. The harlequin spasmed. Loosening its grip, it fluttered around the deck. I scooped it up and threw it over the rail. It unfurled in the damp air like a rotten flag. A month after Elaine left me for Kane, Charlotte Bois died. Maybe it was a broken heart. I got the café and a few francs. I had him interred in one of the new concrete mausoleums in the Cimetière Montepinasse. I draped a red commune flag over his coffin before they slid in inside. The small crowd that had gathered to say goodbye reached for their handkerchiefs as the wind stirred from the northeast. 
the chemical tang of poisoned soil stinging noses and eyes. One mourner wore a gas mask. Elaine came, but stood pressed against the opposite mausoleum. His skin was ashen, and he watched the short funeral with tearless, bloodshot eyes. Cain hovered at a polite distance down the lane, studying a tomb carved in the shape of a life-size four-poster bed, complete with tarnished copper sculptures of the deceased husband and wife. Elaine tried to leave without a word, but I followed him. He turned to me only after reaching Cain's side. We have to go. Elaine muttered, eyes fixed on the ground. Come to the cafe for the wake, I said. Lionel and I are leaving Paris tonight. We're going to England, Kane added, looking at me as if I were a stray dog, begging for scraps. I fought the urge to shove him to the ground. Elaine still refused to look me in the eye. Lionel has an estate in the north. The air is clean. The German zeppelins didn't bomb the area too badly. I flushed with anger. Fine. Go to England, Elaine. It's what you wanted, right? To fly away from here. I hated myself for the brittle note of desperation that crept into my words. Kane smiled a tight, thin line and took Elaine's arms and they walked away. I shouted after them, savoring the bitter triumph of the last word. He'll never come to England! Elaine stopped. He looked back, shaking and pale. Kane snorted in disgust and pulled him more insistently towards the exit, scattering the stray cats that lurked along the path. My victory left my mouth tasting of ashes. But I knew while Elaine might very well go to England, he wouldn't stay. Picasso always came back to Paris. I brushed bits of harlequin from my hands and crossed the gangway into Picasso's aristat. Silence echoed in the mahogany corners of the floating mansion. The aftermath of a mighty revel littered the polished teak decks and Turkish carpets, smashed goblets, half-eaten tarts, and discarded clothes. I stumbled in the dark over empty champagne bottles, nose wrinkling from the stink of spoiled food. Such festive destruction likely signaled the end of Picasso's current stay in Paris. I began to fear that Lionel's warning had come too late. I trudged aft into a corridor pooled with amber light. The hall opened into a wide, semicircular salon, with one wall fashioned entirely of curved panes of glass. Coiling sketches of muscle and sinew darkened the torn wallpaper like impressions of smoke. Shreds of canvas hung from toppled easels. Loose skins of abandoned ideas... I didn't need to look too closely, for such things had hung in the chamber of my own rebirth. At the center of the room was a surgical bed with bins to catch flowing blood. A large canvas hung above it, a rough study of angelic wings in an all-too-familiar style. Beyond, the windows afforded a panorama of Paris's carpet of light, gauzy and soft in the rain. I could just barely make out the wan dome of Les Invalides, 
cracked open like an eggshell during the war. Cold wind swept through the open windows. A man crouched on the windowsill. He unfolded wings like the sketch from the canvas. They might have been the broad, muscular wings of an angel, except the feathers caught the light in shades of blue, gold, and iridescent black and were fashioned from painted cardboard, scraps of canvas, and ragged silk. They hung from a framework of exposed sinew and raw muscle. I begged him to help me leave Paris, Elaine sobbed. He turned from his perch. It was as if Picasso had grabbed a hold of his nose and pulled his face out like putty. Elaine's sad blue eyes peered out over his rough beak, shimmering with tears. A webwork of stitches glimmered silver and black at Picasso's grafts. Pus and blood leaked from the angry flush. A gust of wind tore past the windows, rattling Elaine's feathers. Elaine, I begged, please, don't try to fly. What use are these otherwise? He flapped, churning the air and scattering loose feathers into the breeze. Far below the lights of the cemetery formed constellations of the dead. Remember the story of Icarus, Elaine. Come back inside. I reached out to grasp his shoulder, and he jerked away. There's no sun in Paris anymore. Not since the war. Not since you left, I blurted. Elaine hung his head. He made me a freak, Sam. His voice was barely a whisper. <laughs> Have you seen me? I forced a laugh. You were already dead. And you weren't? He didn't answer, and darkness filled my heart and drowned my voice. I had never found the words to make him stay. Elaine eased out beyond the ledge, his false feathers rasping against the aluminum window frames. I will miss the moonlight in Paris, he said, then hurled himself into the air. For a moment, his faux wings held him aloft. Then, with meaty pops, they began to snap from his shoulders. Elaine screamed and clutched for my outstretched right arm. I grabbed at his wing with my free hand. Relief surged through me, and I pulled him toward safety. This time, I would not let him go. But his fresh sutures wrenched apart. Elaine tumbled, and a sharp tug numbed my right arm. My stitches tore free. Scraps of Phil Vitaliete, scattering like silver starlight. I held his wing in my good hand as Elaine, gripping my severed arm, plummeted into the night. He screamed until he was lost to the cemetery below. Four mighty winches clamped hold of the aerostat's mooring lines, securing Picasso's discarded mansion to the steel decks of the Tour Lamel. I released the brakes on all of them. The wind wheeled the aerostat out over the city until the mooring snapped like barking mortar fire. I returned to the salon and collapsed against the surgical easel. My head swam from blood loss, but Picasso had fashioned me well. Even without my arm, my flesh had already begun to seal itself. 
The storm broke apart over Paris, and the retreating front carried the aerostat and me with it from the city. As I sailed west, over the craters of what had been the Bois de Clamart, I dropped Elaine's torn wing from the windows of the salon. It disintegrated in the gale, trailing false feathers. And welcome back. You know, I love that there's this sad Frankensteinian monstrosity of a hero, and then our villain is Pablo Picasso. Enough said, I guess. Alright, feedback this week is for C.L. Moore's classic tale, The Tree of Life, read by Dave Robison. This was the story that kicked off our month of science fantasy, and it featured Moore's famous spacefaring vagabond, Northwest Smith. Reaction to this one was, well, interesting. J.K. Jackal enjoyed it, saying, Wow, this certainly traveled the genres, from the science fiction space patrols on Mars and force guns, to the fantasy staples of magical glades, priestesses, and enchanted trees, all the way to the horror of an all-consuming interdimensional beings. I have to say, though, what got me really hooked into the story was Smith. He struck me as some kind of turn-of-the-century spacefaring Indiana Jones, and the author leaves just enough hints at his character to intrigue. Who is chasing him? Why? And my favorite, what background of violence allows him to break free of Thag? Glad to hear there are more stories featuring him. I will be checking them out. Ka said, It was well read and quite fun to hear a story I'd never heard of before by an author I'd never heard of before. The style in vogue back then is so florid and purple by today's standards, I had a hard time taking it seriously especially when it started the Lovecraftian part at the end, where it was an indescribable terror, so horrible and indescribable that he could scarcely describe the indescribable, horrible terror. I see what you did there, Ka. Nice. We also had a bit of a contest on who could guess the shortest amount of time between the uses of the adjective queer in this story. Father Beast was the first one to win that, with a guess of seven seconds. Nice going, Father Beast. I hereby dub you our professor of herbology at Podcastle. Now, if you could very carefully go ahead and prune back Thag's great tree limbs carefully, carefully. No, no, wait. Well, we're going to need a new herbology professor, I guess. Come on over to our forum at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. And if you like what we're doing, please consider donating at podcastle.org. Your money, your donations... Help keep our podcast going so we can stitch together some more monstrosities like this one. Turn them into heroes. Thank you. Well, that was our show for this week. We do hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of all of us here at PodCastle, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week when Martha Wells delivers a prickly sort of story all covered up in thorns. Until then, this is Dave Thompson reminding you We'll always have Paris, and we'll always have podcasts. See you in a week. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. 
Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Ernest Hemingway said, There is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.